This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Uh, in terms of Wagner, what we've seen is that it's made things worse on virtually all indicators. Constantine Govi, an analyst with Dutch think tank Klingendale Institute on Russian involvement in Burkina Faso, including the controversial Wagner paramilitary group. Details coming up also. Cough and cold syrups made in India may be linked to the deaths of dozens of children in Gambia. And an independent expert is calling for international support for Somalia. These stories and more ahead on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. After nearly a quarter century as a fugitive, Felicien Kabuga faces prosecution at the Hague branch of the International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals for allegedly using his power, vast resources and influence to incite the killing of hundreds of thousands of Tutsi civilians. Kabuga is accused of acting as the primary financier of the militia and political groups that perpetrated the genocide in Rwanda in 1994 and, among other things, providing weapons and transport to Interhamwe, members of the militia who carried out acts of genocide. Prosecutors have charged the former coffee and tea tycoon with three counts of genocide and two counts of crimes against humanity, primarily for promoting hate speech through his broadcast on radio television Libre de Mille Collines. He is also accused of arming ethnic Hutu militias. VOA's Venust Shimiimana is at The Hague following the court procedure. I asked him first about today's proceedings. Yes, the first witness in the trial of Felicien Kabuga was heard today, giving his account on the role played by RTLM, La Radio Television Libre de Mille the media that was used in 1994 to spread hatred and calls for murder and violence against the Tutsi in Rwanda. The prosecution produced three evidences. The first one is a picture showing people who attended a crucial meeting on February 10th, 1994, where they accused the Kabuga Felician. And um, the witness, known as KAB05, were present together with a few other people who were working in the Ministry of Information, and the witness was asked to recognize some of them who were murdered during the genocide together with the Minister of Information, Ruchogoza. The second piece is a broadcast by one of RTLM journalists named as Habimana Katano, mentioning the names of people he considered as enemies of the state, and the witness confirmed that following that call made live on Radio Mircolin, two individuals, Serubjogo, a prominent businessman from Kamembe, and Gasesero, were both killed. 
so the third evidence is a song sung live by the same journalist celebrating joyfully the examination of Tutsi and the witness told the court that many people who had sought refuge at the Kigali Mosque, known as the Qaddafi Mosque, were killed following the calls made on RTLM. That was the end of the witness account for the prosecution. So, Venusta, uh, Kabuga has a habit of boycotting the trial and attending it from his jail. Uh, was he absent as usual today or was he physically in the court and made an appearance? Yes, as usual, Kabuga was absent yesterday. We could see him. He was following the trial session from, uh, from a room in the prison where he is. But today, he didn't even turn up. So his seat was empty. His name was not mentioned. But uh, from once at the end uh, of the session, when his defense lawyer asked the presiding judge to get more time in order to continue the cross-examination because Kabuga was not uh, present, that was the only time they mentioned that Kabuga was not in the court. So, as you know, this is the first time Kabuga was not there, and we don't know when he will be coming in this court. Venust, do we know why he is not coming yet? What we know is that Kabuga has been saying all the time that his lawyer, the Frenchman Emmanuel Atit, is not defending his interests. And one of his interests is his bank account, which has been frozen by the court and has been trying to get them uh, to get access to his account. And it is not only his personal account, we are talking about also uh, some personal account of a close member of Kabugad families who have been also frozen. And we don't know when Kabuga will be coming to this court until, until probably he gets access to his bank account. VOA's Venust Shimimana, thank you for your input reporting directly from The Hague. Thank you. Yeah, yes. The World Health Organization says cough and cold syrups made in India may be linked to the deaths of dozens of children in Gambia. Reuters says the WHO has issued an alert to remove several products made by Maiden Pharmaceuticals from the market, including Makeoff and Kofex Malin baby cough syrups and Magrip and cold syrup. The medicines include two organic compounds that can be toxic, when consumed, over 66 children in Gambia have died after falling ill with kidney problems within days of taking the syrups. The WHO says it, along with Indian regulators and the drug maker, are investigating. The UN agency says the products may have been distributed in other countries in Africa, Asia and Latin America, but so far have only been identified in the Gambia. A new study says the conflict between Ethiopia's federal authorities and the Tigray region is having a devastating effect on babies and new mothers. According to the Associated Press, the report, which was conducted by two UN agencies and local health authorities, found that 
pregnant women and new mothers today are dying at four times the rate they were in 2020. Maternal mortality is at 840 deaths per 100,000 births, up from a pre-war law of 186. The cause of death is attributed to obstetric hemorrhage and hypertension. Research also shows babies are dying in their first month of life at four times the rate before the war began two years ago. Most die from premature birth infections or failure to begin breathing at birth. Deaths of children under five have doubled, caused in large part by preventable diseases like diarrhea, pneumonia and pertussis. During the coup in Burkina Faso last Friday, civilians and troops took to the streets with Russian flags saying they wanted the country's security partnership with France replaced by one with Russia. In this report from Ouagadougou, Henry Wilkins investigates how Russian disinformation played a part in the country's second coup in eight months. On October 2nd, Burkina Faso's new junta leader, Ibrahim Traoré, announced on national television that the previous coup leader had been ousted. Two days later, one of his soldiers could be seen waving a Russian flag while emerging from what apparently was a stolen UN armoured vehicle. The scenes on the streets of Ouagadougou were chaotic. Nearby, outside the French embassy, protesters also waved Russian flags. He says Russia will help us because of the bloodshed and suffering of our military. Because of some politicians who do not have good governance, we want Russia, one protester shouts, before turning around and running towards the French embassy to attack. Protesters were pulling down razor wire and throwing burning projectiles over the compound walls. French forces inside the embassy retaliated with tear gas and a volley of warning shots. The protesters ran for cover. France has been a partner of Burkina Faso in its near seven-year war with militants linked to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, but anti-French sentiment is rising. Many now think Russia is better suited to solve Burkina Faso's security problems. Evgeny Prigozhin, the founder of the controversial Wagner paramilitary group, has expressed his support for the country's new junta leader. In a report by French news agency, Agency France Press, Prigozhin said Traoré and his men have done what was necessary for the good of their people. Dressed in a hat and tunic in the colours of the Russian flag, Ismail Sawadogo, who runs a shop in Wagadougou's suburbs that flies a Russian flag on a pole outside, said he supports the Russian intervention. He says Russia has weapons and also a vision of how to help Africa. That is why he wants them to come and help in the fight. What Russia is doing in Mali is good and we know that it will be OK. Yes, security in Mali has improved and we can see that, he says. Asked where he got his Russian flag and clothes in Russian colours, he said he bought the textiles and had a tailor make them. Konstantin Guvi is an analyst with Netherlands-based research group, the Klingendale Institute. Guvi told VOA about how Russian intervention in neighbouring Mali is affecting security and the role Russian propaganda has played there. What we see in the case of Mali is that pro-Russian content tied to Russia emerged around the time that the junta uh, made a case for extending the transition and they later on made a case for bringing in Wagner. Uh, in terms of Wagner, what we've seen is that it's made things worse on virtually all indicators. Another analyst told VOA that Wagner has done nothing to improve the situation in Mali and is most interested in disrupting French policy efforts. Meanwhile, people like Pascal Dima are cashing in. He crisscrosses Wagadougou on his motorcycle selling Russian flags to protesters. 
Dimitolvioe, he sells the flags for a thousand francs, or one dollar fifty-two each. People ask for them a lot. I had 350 flags that I shared with a friend to sell. Today, this is the only one I have left, so I kept it for myself. I get them from a tailor for 800 francs each, he adds. Although there are short-term gains for some, according to experts, it looks likely Russia will do more harm than good in finding a long-term solution to Burkina Faso's security problems. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Wagadougou, Burkina Faso. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Zambia's Anti-Corruption Commission has arrested a former health minister and four others for an alleged corrupt deal worth nearly $18 million. The arrests are the latest in anti-corruption campaign against former officials, as Cathy Short reports from Lusaka, Zambia. Zambia's Anti-Corruption Commission says former health minister Chitalu Chilufia defrauded the government in a deal to buy health kits worth nearly 18 million U.S. dollars. He was arrested and charged Wednesday along with four others, the ministry's former permanent secretary and three directors of the Honeybee Pharmacy Company. They denied the charges and were released on bond until the case goes to court. Chilufia was previously arrested for alleged corruption in 2020. The charges of purchasing shares and property with proceeds of crime, which he denied, were later dropped. Separately, Zambia's Drug Enforcement Commission, DEC, on Wednesday detained opposition politician Kelvin Fulvewalia for failing to report a suspicious transaction. He also denied the charge. Wednesday's arrests are the latest in a Zambian government campaign to crack down on corruption. Critics say the campaign is being used to target and intimidate political opponents. Numerous officials who served under former President Edgar Lungu have been arrested and his family has been questioned. In July, Zambia's anti-money laundering agency questioned former First Lady Esther Lungu over her ownership of 15 luxury apartments, but no arrest was made. Current President Hagainde Hichilema has denied allegations that his fight against corruption is targeting opponents. Hichilema defeated Lungu in the August 2021 election in part because of his promises to crack down on fraud and government waste. So far, there have been many charges and investigations in the anti-corruption campaign, but few convictions. Kathy Short for VOA News, Lusaka, Zambia. Sudanese leaders Abdel Fattah al-Burhan has renewed the army's commitment to pave the way for pro-democracy political forces to form a civilian government to complete the transitional period and hold free, just and transparent elections. Joseph Siegel, director of research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, discussed the validity of this commitment with VOA senior analyst Mohamed al-Shanawi. I'm skeptical of these statements. You know, there was already a plan for a civilian transition that Burhan and the military in Sudan had derailed with their coup in October of 2021. So on the one hand, for Burhan now to say that he's ready to step aside seems dubious. Uh, You know, this is especially the case in that what it appears the military is 
really interested in doing is creating a civilian front government that is actually answerable to military authorities. So this would give the impression of a civilian government, you know, reducing the attention and pressure on the military. But in reality, the military would still be calling all the shots. And that's similar to what we've seen in Sudan for most of the last three decades under Bashir and now Burhan. Now, you know, if the military has finally concluded that indeed they do not have the credibility or capacity to manage the government and they are genuinely committed to transition, then that's a positive thing and they should move forward to do so. You know, that doesn't require them to organize elections. What it requires is the reconstitution of the civilian-led transition process that the military derailed and let the civilians manage that transition process. That can take place in a, in a matter of weeks. We don't have to wait for another year or two years for the military to figure out how it's going to facilitate that type of transition. Al-Burhan also complained about Sudan's foreign debt as a hurdle to economic development, and he called on the international community to fulfill its pledge in Paris 2020 and in Berlin 2021 to allow Sudan to benefit from debt forgiveness. How could that happen with the military takeover? It's very difficult to see how that could happen. And it's paradoxical that Burhan is calling for the lifting of debt when that debt was built up over years of economic mismanagement by the military, first under Omar al-Bashir and now under Burhan. You know, Sudan has built up an estimated $1.2 trillion in debt. And it's facing severe economic crisis with contracting economy difficulties, accessing basic goods, 400% inflation. And when Sudan began to move towards a democratic government in 2019, following the protests that ousted uh, al-Bashir, the international community opened up to Sudan you know, very quickly and very widely. There, there was a pledge to rework $23 billion of Sudan's debt. There were pledges of more than $4 billion in aid. And, you know, this was based on the commitment and understanding that there would be a credible, accountable civilian government in place. However, that process was derailed by Burhan and the military when they undermined the transition in October 2021 with their coup. And so as a result, these aid commitments and debt relief have been suspended. So for Burhan now to call for the lifting of these suspensions while he's still in power, you know, because of his coup, seems to suggest that he doesn't fully appreciate that international support is not going to be forthcoming until there's a credible civilian government in place. You know, it's hard to imagine significant international assistance coming forward in Sudan, given the history of corruption and repression and and gross economic mismanagement under the military. And so until we see that change, I can't see how we're going to experience any significant changes in the the debt or, or financial assistance arrangements for Sudan. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohammed Al Shinawi. An independent expert is calling for international support for Somalia, which is struggling to stave off famine and conflict amidst a humanitarian and human rights crisis. She has submitted her report to the UN Human Rights Council. Lisha Schlein reports from Geneva. The most pressing issue facing Somalia is a looming famine resulting from four years of consecutive drought. 
UN agencies report hundreds of thousands of people are facing starvation as acute malnutrition reaches new heights. Independent expert on the human rights situation in Somalia, Isha Difan, says 90% of Somalia's districts are ravaged, and more than a million people have been forced to leave their homes in search of life-saving assistance. The drought has caused a grave humanitarian crisis, affecting more than 7 million people in terms of food shortage, child mortality, and acute malnutrition, and increased fighting for ever-scarcer resources, which has resulted in mass displacement and an increase in violence against women and children. Difan notes Somalia also is facing a human rights crisis that is impeding the government's peace-building and state-building efforts. She says the long-running armed conflict perpetrated by the Islamist militant group al-Shabaab continues to take a heavy toll on civilians and livelihoods. Fighting, she says, is preventing humanitarian relief from reaching communities in need. Al-Shabaab continues to be a major threat and carry out targeted attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure, including markets and hotels in the capital Mogadishu and other towns under government authority. These deadly attacks by Al-Shabaab serves as a reminder that much work remains to be done in the fight to ensure security for all people in Somalia. The independent expert criticizes Somalia's government for failing to rein in human rights violations and abuses by its security forces. She says ongoing reports of intimidation, arbitrary arrest and ill treatment of human rights defenders and journalists by security forces without accountability are deeply worrying. In response, Somalia's ambassador to the UN in Geneva, Ebian Mohamed Saleh, says the new Somali government is committed to ending impunity. She says it is taking measures to ensure the proper administration of justice and accountability. She says the new government is prioritizing the ongoing drought to try to head off a potential full-blown famine. She adds actions also are underway to tackle the culture of violence and fight extremism. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The remaining 23 passengers taken hostage in March after gunmen bombed and attacked a train in northwest Nigeria have been freed. Government and security officials made the announcement yesterday, providing limited details of their release. Gunmen blew up the tracks and attacked the train, traveling between the capital Abuja and Kaduna, killing eight people and kidnapping dozens in one of the most high-profile attacks this year. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Adrius Regas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.
Hello, this is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music from bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, afrobeat to ndombolo and makosa to kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 